0: I also want to mention the subject matter, uh, death. I know that the last time—not the last time, but some time ago when I spoke—I uh, talked about hell, and I know that was a an enjoyable trip for everybody. And uh, so today, as we come and we talk about death, I don't want anyone to hear to think that I'm the grim reaper. Uh, that want to ruin, that wants to ruin your day. I, I and I had planned this long before my wife's homegoing. Uh, this is not a knee-jerk reaction to that. Uh, I had preached on this at Iron Sharpening Iron many months ago, and I was I wanted to do it here, uh, primarily because it's a, it's an issue that just doesn't get uh, I don't think perhaps enough treatment. And I don't mean that in any way faulting anyone, but I'm just saying that I think this is an important issue because it's something we all face and and no one escapes it. Uh, And I really think that it's helpful to look into the text of scripture and hopefully have a better understanding of what uh, death is really all about. And the fact of the matter is It's not some place you go, as we'll talk about in a minute. It's a pathway, and it's a pathway to glory. So as we think about that, I also want to mention something else. Grief is not uh, a sin, and it's not unbiblical. Uh, Jesus, the shortest verse in all of Scripture is Jesus wept. And he wept over Jerusalem. He wept over those people who had rejected him as their savior. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus, not because Lazarus was not going to be raised, but because, again, of the unbelief that was there. And he he weeps, and he has wept over those who have rejected his call to salvation. Uh, Grief is is necessary, and it's important, and it's healthy. And I can speak from experience. Grief is something that is, it grows us, it strengthens us because we appeal to our Lord. And while my walk with the Lord has always been important and always been uh, extremely important, But when we lose a loved one, it becomes critical. Because that's when you really are faced with reality that without him, I can't get through another day. And you look to him constantly and continually. And you pray not only at certain moments, but you pray all day. Every waking moment, you we were looking to Him and seeking Him for strength to get through that day. And in that process, you draw closer to Him and continually recognize your need. And that's exactly what He wants. As we said this morning, as we heard this morning, Jesus had compassion. And that compassion is part of his character, his makeup. That's who he is, a God of compassion and love who gave his life for us. And you recognize that more and more and more as you recognize your need for him, not only in one moment, but every moment of every day. Every step we take, every breath we draw, is because he allows it, because he strengthens us. He wove you in your mother's womb, he determined the time you would come forth, and he has also determined the time you will leave. And that's his business, not ours. When it happens, we embrace it, accept it, and we move on. But we don't move on without pain, and we don't move on without him. That that doesn't happen. And let me just mention here, I'm always mentioning something that I think, well, I need to say this or that. Uh, Two of the ways that God has distinguished us from the animal kingdom, I have a a lab at home that is extremely sensitive, and uh, he's a great dog, (laughs) but he does not grieve. And I know some of you would argue that point, you have animals and you're emotional and you think they're emotional too, they're not. (laughs) Human beings have the capacity to grieve. That's the way God made us, the way God put us together. And as I said, his own son grieved. The second thing is, animals are not self-conscious. They're not aware of themselves the way we are. And they certainly don't know they're gonna die. That dog of mine thinks that every day is gonna be just like the one before it, and the one tomorrow is gonna be like the one that just passed. He has no sense of any of that. God has made many distinguishing features between the animal kingdom and human beings. And that's just a couple of them. And we need to keep that in mind. Now, as we go to this uh, subject of death, I just want to mention, and I don't think we need to elaborate uh, to any great extent, we know death is a result of Adam's sin. We know that death comes as a result of his disobedience to God's direct command. God told him that you can eat of any tree of the garden. The whole, the whole garden, however large it was, every tree was available to him. And does, that, does that not remind you of your own sin? Because you look at all the things that God has made available to you, all the things that you have, and yet there's always that one thing that you don't have that you crave and you want, and many times you, you seek it and you uh, go after it, uh, even though you know deep down in your heart of hearts it's not God's will. It's always it seems like to me it's the very things that he withholds that we want the most, and that again is reflective of our sin nature. He just warned him. He said, "For in the day you eat the fruit from it, you will surely die." The fact is that Adam's sin is imputed to us. Adam disobeyed the Creator. He acted as humanity's, our representative, and when we hit when he fell. We all fell with him. Why do all men die? Because men and women, children, even from the womb are born in sin. And I know when you look at that little toddler that just came forth, you're in the hospital room and you're looking and you just think this sweet little thing is just uh, wonderful and uh, uh, that sweet little thing without salvation and proper parenting and discipline I can tell you from experience of 25 years in law enforcement, you'll wind up in jail. Or dysfunctional in some way. And never have I seen so much lack of discipline among children by their parents as I do in this world today. I was in uh, FedEx the other day, and some woman was in there with her little child, and the child was racing around, had some sort of a computer board in his hand, and just swinging that thing all over, and and, uh, completely, anybody nearby, that child was completely oblivious. And she just went on her better business and just uh, paid no attention, until finally I said, And man, I said, you're gonna hit somebody with that. And she spun around and looked at me and glared and then she said something and then that was the end of it. I hate to bust your bubble, but your children are little sinners. And Proverbs tells us that you need a discipline while there is hope. Because you come to a place where that child reaches a point where a spanking is not going to be, they're not going to be responsive. There's only a brief window when they're really little that they need physical punishment. Once they reach a certain age, then it just creates rebellion. But that precious, those few few precious years, those years when it's the very hardest for you to use that rod is when it most needs to be used. And if you don't, you're gonna pay a price. And I've seen it over and over again. I'm not gonna belabor that anymore. I know you'd love me to, but I'm not. (laughs) But here's the thing I think we often forget and the reason for death is because it's our nature. I don't know if you've wondered why Abraham was told to circumcise the male when they came in to the world. Uh, Why uh, that is so significant? And it's because it is the prompting, it is the uh, male organ that sends in to his wife a desire to sin. It is in the procreation process that sin is passed from one generation to the next. And so that every child who comes into this world is born and comes forth in sin. By that I mean it, it reminds us, with well that, that issue of circumcision in, in uh, John, Genesis 17, that we are born with a sin in nature. We, we need to think and realize and remember that when God told Abraham, and that's not the first culture to ever have circumcision, but it's the first culture where circumcision was commanded with an explanation and a sign of the covenant that God had made with the people of Israel. When you think about uh, procreation, you don't think about that. And when you hold that little baby in your arms, you don't think about that. But Adam's sin is imputed to every generation, each new child, through that process of procreation. And that's a significant thing to remember. That wasn't just some think, it was just some thinking that God had at the moment, thought it was a good idea. There's a profound implication there. And so that children, that child you're bringing into the world has a sin nature. And if you don't discipline him, and if you don't do the parenting that God has called you to do and commanded you to do, you are going to be weeping tears in the years ahead. You see, (laughs) with children coming into this world, and I know I'm here to talk about death, not kids, but uh, (laughs) with children coming into the world, not only is that a wonderful privilege and a joy, you should feel joyful when that child comes into the world, but also what goes with that is responsibility. And that's the part parents don't want. They want to be buddies with their kids. They don't I, I, it's, it's amazing to see parents, they want to be friends with their kids, and they're actually intimidated by their own children for fear they're going to offend them. I grew up in the '40s and '50s. Those kind of thoughts were not prevalent in those days, I can tell you. This is the encroachment of sinfulness and depravity that has been, has integrated itself into our culture and our society over a period of generations. And when you compare the attitude of parents back in the 1800s and the 1900s, and you look at parents today, and I don't know about you, but it can actually make you sick to your stomach. And I mean that, I mean that. The way we reject our responsibility. We want the children, but we don't want the responsibility that goes with it. God did not put, make you a parent to make you buddies with your child. And I also wanna mention something else. <laughs> I say that all the time. Uh, you're one when you get saved you're one with the lord right and the bible also says when you get married you're one with the one you marry those are the only two relationships mentioned in scripture where you're referred to as oneness you're not one with your child and that's why even all through those childbearing years in parenting years your wife or your husband comes first. And you're not buddies with your kids. You love them, you care for them, but your job and role is to train them up in the way of the Lord. So that they then will pass on that same truth to the next generation, the next generation, that's. Let me just say this too, the, the righteousness of Christ At the moment of your salvation was imputed to you. The sinfulness of Adam was also imputed to you. Right? Okay, good. (laughs) You know, when uh, I I think about when David cried out in Psalm 139, he said, uh, uh, no, in Psalm 51, he cried out, he said, in sin did my mother conceive me. He wasn't saying his mother was a prostitute or a wayward woman or an adulteress. He was proclaiming the fact that I came into this world with a sin nature. And so those things are important. And God told Abraham, every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the foreskin, in the flesh of your foreskin. And this act demonstrates clearly the very nature of each new child that comes into this world comes into it naturally disobedient to God and, and in rebellion against God, his word and his law. Circumcision reminds us that sin is passed on from generation to generation, and that's proven out by the fact that everyone dies, which God said would happen. In Proverbs nineteen eighteen, again, I wanna mention this, discipline your child while there is hope. David recognizes in Psalm 51, 50, 51 51.5 that he was a sinner. Corrupt, he had a, he was, came into this world with a corrupt nature, bent on sin and disobedience toward God. Ephesians chapter 2, and you can turn there if you'd like. Uh, uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, we read these words. Uh, where the Lord, uh, through the Apostle Paul, says this. but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, and even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The only one who can turn you from a desire to sin and to turn you from your rebellion is the power of the Holy Spirit as he brings you to Christ. And that's his power, not yours. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless my father first draws him. Which means that you are powerless in and of yourselves to change your own disposition. You can read all kinds of books in philosophy, child psychology, and all this uh, other nonsense that's being produced, it's not going to change the nature. Only Jesus Christ in his power can do that. Otherwise, you're helpless. And Jesus said, all who my Father has given me will come to me, and I will in no wise cast them out. So, <clears throat> I think all of this makes it much more understandable, it brings into sharp focus why the Savior had to be God in the flesh. Because he's the only being who came into this world without a sin nature. How else could he have been an acceptable sacrifice? How else could he have propitiated the Father's Wrath against sin, if he himself had come into this world and sinned, like all of you and, all of, and me. The sacrifice had to be spotless, absolutely perfect. And in his humanity, with human flesh, he proved out his perfection. Because every temptation, every temptation to sin or to violate his father's law, he was tempted, yet, Hebrew says, without sin. And where you and I fail in these temptations, he did not. So he was proven out in his walk on this earth to be perfect. And I also want to mention something else, the second thing uh, about death. Death comes as a result of sin. It's inevitable. It'll come to everybody at some point. Death is because of sin, and death is certain, and I just want to just say this very quickly. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've accomplished, only Enoch and Elijah escape death, and those that will be present at the rapture of the church. Everyone else will... Faith's death. And I think it's kind of interesting that people think because if they (laughs) become vegetarians (laughs) or if they run every day, you know, I always think about that cartoon where the two elderly ladies are looking at this young man laying in his coffin and uh, he's all dressed up, he's got his suit and tie on, he just looks perfect, laying there in the coffin, and the one woman says to the other, well my, he looks great, doesn't he? And the other one says, well you know he ran every day. <laughs> <laughs> Death is certain, and I don't think we need to say too much more about that, But. I do want to mention there's no such thing as purgatory. I think maybe we ought to mention that. There's probably some Catholics here in the room, I mean former Catholics, hush my mouth, uh, former Catholics. But there is no biblical support at all for purgatory. And if you have a Catholic background, you have Catholic friends, you have members of your family that's Catholic, I do, uh, there's no such thing as purgatory. You know what purgatory does? It puts the sinner back in a condition of working their way into God's presence. By grace are you saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, It's appointed for men to die once, once, and then comes a judgment. There's no second chance. And that's proven out throughout Scripture. You then, all will be judged. Believers will be judged, second, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 16, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, and then unbelievers are mentioned in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. All will be judged, but death is certain. After Adam and Eve sinned, Genesis chapter 5, uh, eight times, eight times in Genesis chapter 5, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. proving out God's word. is absolutely perfect and true. Only Enoch escaped physical death. Now what is death? So we know death is caused by sin. We know death is certain. Death is separation. The first thing that occurred after Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? They hid from God. Death is spiritual separation from God. And God considered this so important and so critical that He put an angel at the entrance to the garden with a flaming sword to keep all out. So you come into this world with a nature to sin, you come into this world separated from God because and by that sin, and you remain separated from God unless you come to Christ who heals the breach. 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I want to read this to you. Uh, Paul says this in the second chapter of 1 Timothy. First of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now listen, verse five, there is one God, one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The testimony given at the proper time. Job in Job chapter nine said, He he wished there was an umpire between us. Someone, a a go-between. Well, that go-between was supplied by the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ who heals the breach and brings us back into fellowship with God the Father. So spiritual separation is what occurs, and Jesus alone is the one who heals that breach. No one else can bring you back to the Father. You come to him in faith. We're appointed for men to die once and then comes a judgment, but that's not the case for believers. Uh, Romans chapter six, uh, Paul writes these words, and I'm sure many of you have memorized this. The wages of sin is death, but, and there's the adversity, There's the adversity, but, but, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's there's no other way to escape death, spiritual deaths, eternal death, eternal separation from God, except coming to Christ His Son through faith and repenting of your sin, bowing before the Lord's judgment on you apart from Christ, and it's rightful judgment, it's proper judgment. You will experience His wrath. Eternal separation is what all men face face apart from Christ. Romans 5, verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father sent his son into the world for the purpose of delivering his people, the elect, From the condemnation sin brings, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son, Romans 8, Romans 8, verse 3, which we heard our pastor this morning. So in him, the separation, the breach between us is healed. And not only that, and here's here's the wonder of it, He not only saved us from our sin, he then did something he didn't have to do. He could have stopped there, but he went farther. John 1.12 says, that many has believed in him, to them he gave the right to what? Become children of God. He adopted you into his family and gave you all the rights and privileges in that family condition of his own son. It's a wonder that people, that we don't spend more time in prayer, and I say that as someone who did not spend enough time in prayer in my past life, I mean, in the early years of my salvation. And sometimes when I think about those opportunities I had to pray and I didn't, I'm ashamed. It's natural for us to go to our Heavenly Father with every problem, every concern, Every tension, every trauma, every turmoil, every tribulation, every trial. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5 cast all your anxieties upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. And we certainly heard that this morning. Matthew chapter nine, he looked out over the crowds and he felt compassion for them. Literally, that, that, that Greek word there means his stomach just was affected, his emotions. He isn't just a God of intellect, he's a God who loves you. Talk about love. This world has no idea what love is about. He loves us to the point that he died for us. What more can a man do? and to die for the people he loves. The wicked are separated forever. Luke 16, 23 through 24, you read about that great the great chasm that exists, a chasm that cannot be bridged by anything that anyone could possibly do after they're dead. Now, what does it mean to me personally. Uh, look at 2 Corinthians chapter five for just a minute. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter five says this as we look at six, verse six, Paul says this, therefore being always of good courage and knowing that while we were at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Death is not some place we go. It's a passageway. It's a passageway that takes us into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a gate through which we pass on the other side, which is glory. Death is the middle ground. We walk on our way to eternal life with Him. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 says this, He, Christ, rescued us from the domain of darkness and and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. You come into that kingdom, you come into his presence, he is there to embrace you. He is there to enfold you in his arms. I welcome you into his presence because you are, have been made his beloved son and child, his daughter. And he is there with open arms to welcome you into his kingdom where you will be forever. Jesus saved us forever. I was talking to a young man in the prayer room just a few minutes ago who had doubts about his security. I said, do you know that you were chosen from eternity past? Your names are written in the book of life before you were ever even born? Ephesians chapter one is clear. And Hebrews is clear in saying he saved us once and for all and forever, what God has determined, what, what God has created, no action, even an action by the saved sinner can dislodge you from his eternal presence. And besides that, where is he right now? He's, just, he's our high priest. Sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, where Hebrews says he ever makes intercession for us. We're not only saved once and for all at that moment of salvation when we come to him in faith, but we are continually being saved. When the evil one rises and wants to point a finger at you, Jesus is there to say, no, I paid for that sin. I paid for that sin, you can't charge him. It's taken care of. The evil one cannot bring a charge against you as a saved person. Because Jesus is not only our lamb, he's not only our sacrifice, he's not only our king, but he is also our high priest, ever making intercession continually. And those nail-pierced hands, he holds up. I paid for that sin. Physical death. Is what interdu- introduces us to life eternal. James said this, uh, Jesus, I'm sorry, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear Him, God, who is able to destroy both, both soul and body in hell. We don't fear death. We fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's proper fear. Not cringing fear, but proper fear. And here Jesus makes separation between the physical body and, and the human soul. Separation, physical death, Genesis 35 is clear that when, when Rachel was dying, it, it, it says right there, I think it's a verse 18, where it says her soul was leaving her body. That's an explanation of physical death. What we're dealing with here is spiritual death. Your soul is gonna leave your body at death, but where is it gonna go? You gotta keep your eye on the ball, so to speak. Be concerned about the things that you need to be concerned about. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 18, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal. That's this body. This body's deteriorating. No matter what you eat or what you drink or how much exercise you do, it continues to deteriorate. I don't doubt seriously that there's a person here in this room who's exercised over the years more than I had, and I don't say that in, in a braggadocio way at all, but I, I was at the academy at, uh, instructing recruits uh, for 13 years, every single day. Running, working out, running marathons, doing all kinds of things, I, I, I loved to work out. It wasn't a burden, I loved it, I enjoyed it, and now, i got a doctor for each body part. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing that I did has helped, except. (laughs) So this body, yes, is going to be resurrected. Philippians chapter 3 tells us. But this body, this body that you see, is deteriorating. And nothing's gonna stop it. And how many times have I heard Pastor John say, the moment you are born, <laughs> you begin to die yes. because of sin. So Paul, so Paul writes this to the Philippians in chapter one, verse 23: For me to live is Christ and die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which is to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to part and to be with Christ, for that is much better yet to remain on in the flesh is better for your sakes. And uh, Jesus said, he goes to prepare a place for us in John 14, three. And you need to think about his next words. (laughs) He said, because you remember he was telling me he was gonna leave him and they were pretty shook up about that. They didn't want him to leave. So what did he say? I'm going to prepare a place for you. Why? So that where I am, you can be also. God put in, puts in the believer a hunger to be with him. He puts in a hunger for us. We wanna be with him. We look forward to that great day. Our citizenship, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 says in heaven. And uh, That's where Jesus is. So death is because of sin. It's certain separation. And it's God who sets the time of our departure. And I I don't think we need to, again, spend a lot of time here. But, again, you can't determine the time of your departure. You can't do that. You know, David said, in your book, we're all written the the days that were ordained for me. When as yet there was not one of them. Come into this world, God knows your entrances, he knows your exits. <laughs> but that's a—it's right here. And you know something else that's interesting? When, <laughs> I think of Alexander the Great conquered most of their known world, right? He went all the way, to the, he took his army all the way to the Indus River in India. to finally his army said, look, we're worn out, we're done. We're done with this. We're done with this world-conquering stuff. So after it was all over, he's been through all these battles, (laughs) and he dies of some kind of fever. And at the time, by the way, he was drunk. Lawrence of Arabia, five foot one archeologist, white man from England, was able to consolidate the tribes of Arabia long enough to overcome the Turks and bring freedom to those Arab tribes in World War I. He went through all that. If you've seen the movie, uh, I read his book years ago, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, all that he went through, and then several years after it was all over, (laughs) he dies in a freak motorcycle accident. George Patton took the troops all the way from North Africa to southern France. World War II is over. He dies in a jeep accident a few years later. God is the one who determines when we die. I mean, I think Bucephalus, Alexander's horse, outlived him. God is the one who determines when you're going to die. So relax, enjoy the ride. <laughs> now, finally, I know we got to stop here at some point, but uh, Ecclesiastes chapter seven. What's your attitude be? <laughs> well, I just want to read this very quickly as we close out here. In verse two of Ecclesiastes chapter seven, verse two, and I. I Really had a lot more here, but we're running short of time. Uh, But just focusing on verse two of Ecclesiastes chapter seven. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting because that is the end of every man. The living takes it to heart. Better a house of mourning. For those of you older folks, you may remember the name Audrey Hepburn. She was active in the movies in the 40s, 50s, and even in the 60s, she died in the early 90s. She said this, the most important thing is to enjoy your life. Be happy, it's all that matters. We look at some of those folks and we think, they think they're gonna defeat death, they're gonna live forever. What's important is to be pretty or handsome and wear nice clothes or have money or go here, go there. I tell you, when you look at the lives of some of them behind the scenes, most of them were pretty corrupt. And not just corrupt, they were miserable, they were unhappy. You hear that about these people time after time after time. When the veil's pull back and you get to see how they actually live behind the scenes of the camera. Kerry Grant said one time, he says, he was facing some serious problem and he said, I wonder what Kerry Grant would do That goes, runs contrary exactly to what we're reading here, doesn't it? Solomon was the wealthiest, the most powerful man of his day, and God gave him wisdom. Matter of fact, in 1 Kings 3, it says, God gave him a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no one like you before you nor shall one come after you. Kings came from all over to seek his wisdom and his counsel because he was such a wise man. God gave him so much. Uh, And yet, when he writes Ecclesiastes, he's describing a life of disaster, a life squandered. So... If we understand that, it shouldn't surprise us that he says it is better to go to house of mourning than to go to house of feasting. He spent a lot of time in, in, in houses of feasting. Uh, when we look at this, uh, we, we look at this, this man who had had so much offered to him: wisdom and power, position. He had everything. And yet he says it's better to go to house of mourning. To go to a house because that is the end of every man. What he's saying here is that when you go to a house of mourning, you go to a house of death, it balances your perspective and gets your mind and your heart riveted on what is really truly important. And you realize when you see that person there, if, where we don't do that as much anymore as we did when I was growing up, but when you look at that person who's died, it serves to remind you of your own coming death. And it is, serves you to think about and contemplate that day. And it doesn't make you gloomy Christians should be joyous. We're not saying it's, it's, it, we, we should just be gloomy, and nor are we saying that we shouldn't share the joy of Christ with others. And we're not saying that you can't have a birthday party for your child, or you can't go to some nice place and have dinner with your wife. Nobody's saying that. Jesus isn't saying that. God isn't saying that. Solomon's not saying that. But what he's saying is that we get so wrapped up in festivities and feasting and having good times and looking at life and looking at this world like it's a playground for us to play in and have fun in. And that's not true at all, is it? We see a world engulfed in turmoil and angst and war and hatred and anger. We see our own culture deteriorating. How does one keep their balance in all of this? It's a reminder when you go to the house of mourning that, yes, I can enjoy those good things that Christ has given me, but I don't allow myself to be immersed in living my life for pleasure and my own grandisement. Since my wife has gone home to be with the Lord, I've had a chance to go through some things in our house. Over 56 years of marriage, we have accumulated and the stuff that I have literally thrown out. And I look at my own closet. My wife used to say, oh, it's never good enough to buy one or two Tommy Bahamas. You gotta have six. Uh, <laughs> don't tell anybody I said that. <laughs> why, are, why are we driven? to materialism. Why are we driven to festivities and parties and having a good time? Because it helps to remove from our minds and our hearts the reality that one day, somebody's gonna deposit us in a pile of dirt. And what are we gonna have to take with us? (laughs) You came into this world naked, you're gonna go out naked. What the place of mourning does is help us to keep, not to make us morbid, but to help us to maintain our balance and to maintain our perspective. And let me also mention something else along with this. In the, verse, the first verse of chapter seven, a good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the way of one's birth, what's he saying here? How are you living your life? How are you living your life? What kind of a legacy for those who will be here after you are gone? What kind of legacy are you leaving? What kind of a legacy are you leaving for your kids? When they think back on their dad or their mother, who, what are they going to think? Are you investing in their lives by living a life that has got substance to it? that isn't a life that's been caught up in frivolity and parties and festivities and having a good time and living a life focused on trying to take your mind off the reality of your coming demise. Life is brief. And with the light of that brevity of life, what am I doing in my life? David said this in Psalm 39.4, Lord, make me know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how, listen, how transient I am. Do you ever pray that prayer? And not one of you here can guarantee you're going to be here tomorrow. Tomorrow is guaranteed to nobody. In light of what we have just said, maybe we should re-examine ourselves and renew our commitment to our Lord. You remember the man was gonna build all the new barns in Luke 16, remember? You'll say yes, even if you don't. I'm sorry, Luke 12, 16. He's gonna build barns, why? And what did Jesus say? Today your life is required of you. We plan and we plan and we plan. We plan it around our material possessions, our bank account, and we even go to the point where we don't watch the news anymore because it's depressing. Well, <laughs> I'll tell you something else about it. And I'll close with this. I've got to close. I know. I've got to quit. <laughs> One of the things that going to the House of Mourning does, and it's done this for me personally, it reminded me of what it's like to live in a community of believers that have demonstrated their love and their Christ like care for me beyond description. without without your prayers, without the demonstration of your love toward me, that so many of you have shown. I mean, i got a drawer full of cards. I don't know where I'm going to put all of them. (laughs) The people who have come up to me, even in public places, Let's pray, Terry. The love that this church has shown and the people of this church and the leadership of this church, it's like nothing I've ever experienced in my life. So while death has brought pain and sorrow, it's at the same time brought joy and comfort that I would have never known had I not gone to the house of mourning. And so it's, it's something for you to remember that you can experience the love of the body of Christ when you go to the house of mourning. And it also reminds you of what a horrendous and what a heavy responsibility you have to show the care and concern for others when they go through what one day many of you are gonna go through. I can't, I can't, you know, we we could keep going but with other things, but we'll stop there. But I hope helpfully, hopefully, it's been helpful to you. You put up with my tears and uh, my emotions I thought I could do this, but uh, I got hammered here at the end, but uh, thank you so much.